0: Page 614, if you're using the Pew Bible in front of you. Psalm 130, give your attention to the reading of God's holy word, inerrant and infallible, perfect to accomplish all of his purposes. He gives us this word for our good. Psalm 130, a song of essence. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Amen. Then go to James chapter 2. James chapter 2 for our sermon text this morning. Give your attention once more to the reading of God's holy word for the grass will wither. The flowers will fall. God's word endures forever. James 2 verse 8. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. This is the word of the Lord. The gospel is amazing, wonderful, incredible for many reasons, but one of the things that that makes it especially so powerful is that it teaches us that we should expect nothing and everything at the same time. So John Newton says in a particularly beautiful and poignant quote, the gospel convinces a sinner that he is unworthy of the smallest mercy... And at the same time, it gives him a confidence to expect the greatest. I was trying to think of of something that parallels this. It was difficult uh, to do. And one example that I came up with is when you see these videos, these are some of those tear-jerking videos that you see, Um, a sick child who has a special day with the the Make-A-Wish Foundation. And perhaps they get to go see their their favorite athlete on a professional sports team or their their favorite singer or something like that. And uh, they're always caught up in kind of the enormity of the moment. They walk and see the huge arena and then the the, the favorite uh, athlete comes out of the tunnel and greets them. They go into the locker room. Oftentimes, uh, he or she will be able to sign an endorsement contract with Nike or something like that. They're given all of this apparel and all of this athletic gear. And the whole experience, you see on their face that this is so much more than I ever could have expected. Why? Because they know inherently that they have not, uh, in a sense, earned that place there. They have not ascended the latter of athletic achievement, or if it's their favorite singer, they they have not signed because uh, they are a wonderful artist or anything like that. They're kind of along for the ride that day, and yet at the same time, uh, they're filled with so much confidence because they know that this day has been especially planned for them, and whatever this organization is going to do for them, it's going to be wonderful. It's going to be marvelous. The gospel in a much more direct, much more serious way, of course, it, on the one hand, cuts us down to say, what what can you expect in and of yourself? Well, nothing. And yet, at the very same time, that the promise of salvation and blessing in Christ fills you with confidence to, to expect that the greatest things that God will give, that he will bestow upon his people, we can have confidence that that will come to me because of what Jesus Christ has done for me. The question before us in this passage in James is how much does that affect the way that you live? How much have you grasped that kind of dual-sided truth, expect nothing, expect everything, and how much has it fed into the way that you live your life, the way that you relate to the people whom God has brought into your path? That's the question that's before us today. Let's consider these things together. First is, how is James uh, using this term, the law, and this keeping or fulfilling the law? Our first main point there, keeping the law of Jesus. It's important to understand and to think about how James is speaking about these things in his letter under the inspiration of, of the Spirit. Lots of different interpretations. ...for what's going on here with the law. It's interesting that James keeps adding these these adjectives... ...these unique adjectives to describe the law. So in chapter 1, verse 25, uh, he calls it the perfect law... ...the law of liberty. Here at the beginning of our passage today, he calls it the royal law. And in verse 12 of our passage, once again, we see that term... ...the law of liberty... Either James is kind of using endearing terms to describe the law. He really wants us to see the beauty of the law of God, which is, of course, a beautiful thing. And so he's using these endearing terms. But more likely is that he's wanting us to comprehend the law through a certain lens. And that lens is the lens of Jesus. This is the law of God as it is seen, and comprehended in Christ. In other words, the the, the royal law is the law, as we understand it, coming from our King Jesus. And we'll explain that a little bit more. But why do we think that? Well, James has, has Jesus right at the center of all that he is doing. In chapter 2, verse 1, he speaks of the faith that we hold in our Lord Jesus Christ. And he's not just talking about the fact that we trust in Jesus Christ. He's saying that all that we do spiritually by faith is something that is done in Christ. Christ is the center of it all. He also says in verse 1 of chapter 2, He describes Jesus as the Lord of glory, which brings a particular image of a reigning king. He is the glorious and reigning and exalted king, Jesus Christ. And our faith is centered upon him, so we trust in him, we live in him, we look to him, we feed on him. He is our redemption, our righteousness, our ruler who brings us to new obedience. And Christians are said, not only here but elsewhere to keep and fulfill the law of Christ. This is one of the things that brings James and Paul close together. Some people suggest they're kind of opposed and they're saying different things. They're they're certainly not. For instance, in Romans chapter 13, uh, the Apostle Paul, again under the inspiration of the Spirit, speaks of fulfilling the law. Now, uh, when we hear that, of course, as, as Christians, as Reformed Christians, we understand that to be justified, to be forgiven of all of our sin, that's something that happens by grace through faith. It's granted to us. It is a gift. Yet we need to understand something of what the Bible is talking about here in fulfilling the law. So James says in in Romans 13, Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Same language. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. And then in the book of Galatians, Paul speaks of the law of Christ, which is what James describes as the royal law. Galatians 6 verse 2, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Theologians, good ones, call this evangelical obedience. In other words, this is the kind of obedience that flows out of the heart of a forgiven sinner who is trusting in Christ And as they do all of these things, trusting in Christ, God looks upon the sincerity of the faith of that believer who sincerely trusts Christ and says, whatever I do is not going to be perfect, but I know that my king is subduing me to himself. I know that my king has called me to live a certain life and so I'm going to trust in him and sincerely walk in obedience. And God looks upon the sincerity of such a person and he accepts what we do as pleasing in his sight even though it is not perfect and it will never be that is called evangelical obedience and the one who does that who is who's is living out obedience under the reign of Jesus Christ as his savior he is the one who keeps and fulfills the royal law notice that James and Paul are focusing on the second table of the law right? the first table Summarizes our obedience and duty to God. The second table summarizes our obedience to uh, our be, obedience to God in loving our neighbor. And why is that? Well, it, it, a couple reasons. The first is that there's nowhere to hide when God says, "Love your neighbor as yourself." Someone might claim, "I love God with all of my heart," and that's something between me and God. And who are you to judge me? for that. That's something that I hold inwardly. But if you claim to love your neighbor as yourself, of course, that will have an attendant life along with it. It's impossible to hide. First John speaks about this as well as James and Paul. First John 4 says this, if anyone says, I love God, but hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. So that's one reason. Another reason is because what Christ does for us in the gospel and the peace that flows from understanding yourself as one who has been justified, as one who has gained this standing before God because of what Jesus has done. He has washed away your sin and as you trust in him, his righteousness, his law keeping is given to you as a gift. And so that then frees you up to joyfully and freely serve others. It turns you away from that self-obsession that you would have, not knowing where you stand before God. And it frees you up to turn outward to those around you and to serve them. Love your neighbor as yourself. So James then highlights in the first two verses of our passage today, really two paths that you can take the one who fulfills the royal law, who does so by trusting in Jesus Christ, and the one who is then convicted by the law. she uses the example of the one who turns back to partiality. She says in verse nine, if you show partiality, you are committing sin and convicted by the law as transgressors. Note that that there seem to be two distinct ways that James is using the law here. The one sense, it is this royal law, it's this freeing thing, it is this life-giving thing, the law of God. And then the same law is, the, is that which convicts, is that which condemns for the one who shows partiality. What's going on there with partiality? We considered that last week. I think James is highlighting here that partiality is inherently selfish you favor someone because of what you can get out of favoring them it's inherently selfish love of neighbor fulfilling the royal law is inherently selfless because it's one who has learned obedience from Christ who is the pinnacle and the perfection and the picture of selflessness And that is why it is so important to understand this royal law as that which is understood through the lens of Christ. It's that which comes to us from our King Jesus, of course. Because when you are in Christ, as we've been saying, you are justified. The righteous demands of the law have been met in Jesus. That's what it means to be in Christ. So Romans 10 verse 4. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. In Christ, the law cannot speak a word of condemnation against you. And the one who trusts in those promises and looks to Jesus as his reigning king, he is the one who fulfills the royal law as he seeks to obey him in genuineness. But then this other path that James highlights is the law outside of King Jesus understood apart from King Jesus. And apart from King Jesus, what can the law do? It can condemn. It can convict. And James then highlights the standard of righteousness that the law brings to us. And, and what, is basically, what he's basically saying is that you don't have a prayer to sort of pile up partial acts of righteousness that will be pleasing to God because you have to understand where this law comes from. It comes from the perfectly righteous and holy God. So verse 10, whoever keeps the whole law but fails in just one point has become accountable for all of it. In each commandment in the law of God is represented all of them, right? If you you break one commandment, you in some sense break them all. There are several illustrations that might help us in our our understanding of it it just it helps us to see that the unity of a law the unity of of God's law if someone says go on vacation they say I I went to Massachusetts or I went to Texas or I went to Montana and we understand that they have in, in a genuine sense, they have seen the state. They have been to the state. But they've, they've really probably only covered or seen the square mileage of the state, something equaling well below 1%. It's 0.0001% of the state. You have genuinely been there. You have, you have seen it. One, one exception to this would be Hank and Judy going to Wyoming. They've, they've probably seen something like 90%, 95% of the landmass of Wyoming based on the stories that you've said. But uh, we understand, yes, you have been there. You've seen it. You've seen Montana. You've been there. When you break your phone screen, you take it to the repair shop. Do they say, oh, yeah, we'll be able to kind of fix this one little crack in it. We'll kind of saw out that little piece of the screen, put a little. No, you have to replace the whole screen, the whole thing you have to replace. And it's that thing with the law of God. In each commandment is represented all of them. That is how God's law works. It's not something you can take up piecemeal. And why is that? What James brings our attention to is God the lawgiver. He says, For he who said, do not commit adultery, is the one who also said, do not murder. In other words, the commandments, the law of God come to us, From this one who is incomprehensible, this one who is most blessed, this one who is the fountain of life, who has all life in himself, and would he speak something to us that he does not mean? Of course not. I struggle with this as a parent. This is my own struggle and imperfections as a dad. The kids are doing something that I don't really like, and so I lay down a rule don't do that anymore. That's enough of that and then i realize sometimes that what they're doing is not really morally objectionable perhaps it was just something that that i don't really like and so if i lay down this new hard and fast rule that's going to be very difficult to enforce and there's probably going to come some time down the road where they're doing it and they know that i can see them doing it and i'm not enforcing the rule all of a sudden this notion of rules and laws in the house it crumbles a little bit. So, you have to be careful as a parent, the kind of rules you set down. Is it something that you actually are going to enforce? And is it right to enforce? Of course, you must lay down rules in the house, but you need to be a wise lawgiver. God is a wise and a perfect lawgiver. If only we had such that were governing over us all of the time. One of the, the problems with The law today in our land is that it has become so widely cast, and we have laws and ordinances and regulations. Some of the things I've read make it almost impossible for someone to be perfectly law abiding at all times. The whole notion of law making and law keeping is crumbling around us because we have this code of laws that keeps getting added onto it more and more and more. It's not the way God acts as a lawgiver. Everything that he speaks to his people as a commandment, he means, and he means for us to obey. He said to his people in the wilderness, I am the Lord your God. Walk in my my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. It cannot be taken up piecemeal because of the holiness of the one who gives it. So one pastor said this, and it's a, it's a brilliant thought you cannot depersonalize the law of God Well, see here we have the ten commandments we kind of evaluate the ten commandments maybe one of them I don't take so seriously no all of them we take supremely seriously because the one because of the one who gives it you cannot hide from one commandment because hiding from one commandment you're hiding from God you cannot have a pet sin in your life that you kind of nurture and cultivate and think well I have all of this other obedience and I'm going to kind of have this one sin on my terms. And I'm actually not that bad. Because if you look at the, my whole body of work, who would not be impressed? But yes, I have this area. And I'm not working to mortify that sin. I don't really repent of it. I keep it to myself. Your problem there is not with the law itself. Your problem is with God. And that highlights then, of course, the futility of living by law-keeping. You cannot uh, pile up these partial acts of righteousness when you are approaching the law outside of King Jesus. It doesn't work that way. To break one commandment is to break all of them. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, as we read in Galatians. And so this then brings us to seeing these two paths fulfilling the law of liberty, and to break one commandment is to break all of them. It brings us back to to zoom out and say, okay, with these two paths, obviously the first one is preferable, understanding the law as it comes to us and is understood in Christ that I'm forgiven, that I stand in grace, that my Father loves me, that he accepts my sincere and genuine obedience. I want that path. But what placed you on that path in the first place? It was the mercy of God. It was the grace of God. It was his forgiveness. It's the mercy of God which places you under the royal law, the law of liberty, the law of Christ. It's the mercy of God which exchanges our sin and our misery and our certain condemnation for the blessed inheritance that Christ has won for us. So what flows out of a true recognition of those things? Thankfulness, gratitude, joy-filled and freely rendered service. How much has your life been changed with the simple recognition that in the gospel I am taught to expect nothing and everything at the same time. With that in mind, would you dare to be a person who is not eager to forgive? Would you dare to be a person who is not eager and filled with joy to extend forgiveness and to be set at peace with your brother or sister in Christ? Calvin says that Uh, You can summarize this passage this way. He says, since none of us can stand before God, no one, except we be delivered and freed from the strict rigor of the law, we ought so to act that we may not through too much severity exclude the indulgence or mercy of God of which we all have need at the last. What was our psalm reading this morning? Psalm 130. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, who could stand? If God reacted to all of my sins, to all of your sins in the way that they deserved, if if he marked them, if he punished them, if he punished us, what kind of plea would any of us have? Nothing. Would any of us be here if God marked iniquities and dealt with them exactly as they deserve? No. We're on a level playing field. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, who... Could stand, but God's mercy is great. He is plenteous in mercy. His mercy is from everlasting to everlasting. His mercy is as high as the heavens. He is tender in mercy. You live and you breathe on God's mercy. And you understand that to live under the royal law, the law of liberty, is a blessing. Of God's mercy. And it is to live with the fundamental recognition. That one day. You will stand before your God. And for those who pass the bar on the last day. It will be an exercise of God's mercy. You need God's mercy from beginning to end. And it will be those. We all will give an accounting to our God. But it will be those who have obeyed the call of the gospel and have trusted in Christ for their forgiveness, for their righteousness, for their holiness, for their cleansing, for their salvation. It will be God's mercy. Nobody is walking into eternal life because of what they have merited. And that's what James points us to. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty live that way, what would a community of believers look like if they all kept at the front of their minds, Psalm 130 verse 6, verse 3, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, who could stand? What would it look like? Would it not be a thoroughly forgiving community? would it not be a group of people that are eager and filled with joy to forgive and to extend forgiveness and to be set at peace with one another? Why? Because we all are getting blessings that we do not deserve. Because we all have been freed to live under the reign of King Jesus. Because we all understand that because of Christ, our Father loves us and he accepts our sincere and genuine efforts to obey him. And that even though we will fall short in many ways, he still loves us. Those who have an acute awareness of this will live seeking to be rich in mercy to those around them. Micah 7, as we read this morning, God delights in what? He delights in showing mercy. It brings him joy. So his people will delight in showing mercy as well. Can you live with that at the center of all you think and do? And if you do, is it possible to live without an eagerness to forgive? The parable of the unforgiving servant is always appropriate to talk about in these contexts. A servant owes 10,000 talents to his master. He pleads with his master, Forgive me of my debt. The master does. 10,000 talents. We've all heard sermons on that, millions, whatever it is, tens of millions of dollars. And he goes and he meets a fellow servant who owes him 100 denarii. 100 denarii sometimes to her sermons that say, well, that's like pennies. It's actually not. It's, it's one third of, a, of an annual salary. It's 100 days wages. That's a significant sum, particularly uh, for a servant. In other words, Jesus is recognizing that, that all of us have been wronged in significant ways. And there are deep hurts that exist in this life when people wrong you. There is a significant pain that you may be feeling from something or from someone. It's not pennies. But when the fellow servants see that this servant was not forgiving and merciful to the one who owes him 100 denarii, they go to the master. They say, something is not right with this. They're not saying it's nothing. but They're saying something isn't right. You forgave him the 10,000 talents. He doesn't forgive the 100 denarii. The master calls him back in. In anger, it says, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not have had mercy on your fellow servants as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Do you dare to not forgive? Do you dare to be a person who is not marked by an eagerness to forgive your brother or sister? That is evidence that you have not understood fundamentally that the gospel is something that teaches you you deserve nothing And yet you get everything because of Christ. And that's what uh, the Bible brings before us again and again and again. Matthew 6. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your heavenly Father forgive your trespasses. It is those who understand that because of Christ, mercy will triumph over judgment. When you stand before the Father. You stand before Christ. You stand before your Savior. Mercy will triumph over judgment because of Christ. So will mercy triumph over judgment in your life. So if your life is marked by judgment, by a desire to be harsher than God, to be more severe than God, that is a very serious situation to be in spiritually. Luke chapter 6 says, with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. What kind of measure are you using? Do you have more wrath than God? Are you not eager to forgive someone who seeks out forgiveness and reconciliation from you? Are you seeking to be more wrathful than the one who has forgiven you 10,000 talents? Do you dare to not forgive? Oftentimes what this comes down to is an inability to see the depth of one's own sin. One has not grasped accurately how deep and how wicked the sin of their own hearts are. They're blinded to it. They actually believe in their hearts that with them there's probably not much to forgive. The problem there is not with the law Specifically, the problem is with God. You have a problem with God. For the word that he gave to us says, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, who could stand? And if you reject that and say, well, maybe I can stand a little bit on my own. James is saying that if you live life without an eagerness to forgive others, without an eagerness to be reconciled to them, don't expect God's mercy in the day of judgment. Because you are not showing evidence that you have understood, that you have experienced, that you have seen, that you have grasped, that you've been blessed with. Eyes to see the mercy of God in Jesus Christ. Use this time in this passage today to consider, do I delight to show mercy? Am I filled with joy to be reconciled? Do I delight to show mercy like the mercy that I say I believe God has shown me in Jesus Christ? And if not, have I rightly understood the magnitude of his mercy? We're always struggling to grasp it. It's not a perfect understanding. None of us do. There are times when all of us will struggle to forgive. But those who are consistently, continually marked with an inability to extend mercy and forgiveness, have they grasped even a little bit the depth of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ? The gospel convinces a sinner that he is unworthy of the smallest mercy. And at the same time, it gives him a confidence to expect the greatest. Think about that. Allow that to wash over you and allow that to shape the way that you live your life so that mercy would triumph over judgment in your heart and in your life because it is through Jesus Christ that mercy will triumph over judgment when you stand before him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We praise you. We, we love you for what you have done for us, we pray that you would help us to see the glory of the gospel of Christ, that it may give shape to the way in which we treat others, the way in which we forgive and extend mercy, and the way that you fill our hearts with an eagerness to do so. Forgive us, cleanse us, build us up in Christ by the power of the Spirit. Amen.